We are continuing our series this morning on holding things loosely. The, the idea that God's word exhorts us to loosen our grip on things that we tend to hold to firmly, desires, attitudes, things that, that we sometimes hold on to hard. And um, this morning, we're picking up second part of, of looking at holding loosely accusations, suspicions, and judgments. And, and this one, more than the others, we'll talk about it, spending two weeks on this, because I, I, I think this is sort of heart and soul of daily living. When we, when we have difficulties in relationships with other people, when we have conflicts, when things arise, so often it, it, it's in our minds that, that we develop certain suspicions of what they're thinking and why they're doing this. And, and, and it goes beyond just the actions or the words to our judgment then about what that person has done. And so how do we respond to that when there is an offense perceived or real? How, how can we glorify God? How can we love our neighbor? How can we de-escalate conflict and, and seek to preserve peace as we hold these things loosely? So last week we talked about five things to do in, in order to hold loosely accusations, suspicions, and judgments. Let me just review them real quick. They're in the sermon notes on the uh, website as well. But first, ask God for help to search out our own motives. This is the Matthew five, uh, Matthew 7, I should say, 1 and 5, um, that as, as you go to pick that speck out of your, your brother's eye, you first take the log out of your own eye. And so asking God to help you to see your own motives and desires in this. Secondly, asking if love can cover this, Second uh, Peter 4, and then again, First uh, Peter 4, I should say, and Proverbs 17, 9, both talk about love being this gracious bomb that covers a multitude of sins, that there is much that we are able to overlook, that we are able to continue in relationship and, and loving that person with as love covers a multitude of sins. Third, ask for wise counsel. We saw this in Proverbs in particular, that the safety that is in counsel, that is in numbers, the deliverance or rescue that comes from asking others for help and being able to be rescued from escalating situations sometimes. Fourth, ask hard questions of yourself. Scripture is very clear that, that we can be self-deceived. In Hebrews, it speaks of Hebrews 3.13, the deceitfulness of sin. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful. Um, we, we've got some sort of internal stuff going on with our own sin that we can be deceived. And so it's good that we ask questions of ourselves, that we, we be self-suspecting in those questions to check ourselves again. Um, then the fifth one is to not infer other people's motives. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. We are looking at the surface. We're hearing the words. We're seeing the actions, but we're not seeing the heart. The only way we can get to motives is if they are revealed to us by the person. If the person tells you, this is why I did this. This is what I, I, I wanted in that moment. But other than that, we do not, no matter how well we know that person, no matter how much experience we have with them, we are not the Holy Spirit and we cannot assume their motives. So that's where we left off. I want, I want to pick up with five more this morning, ways to hold accusations, suspicions, and judgments more loosely. So let's assume that we've kind of walked through those early ones. There is some perceived offense. I don't believe that love can simply cover it. It's caused a break in the relationship in some way. I've asked God for help. I've asked hard questions of myself. I've asked other people to, to, to walk into my life and, and open myself up to their questions. And I've 
trying not to infer motives. So what's next? Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Here's number six. Be eager to win your brother. That last part there, this, this passage, Matthew 18, 15 to 18, commonly described as process of church discipline. You've got a stubbornly unrepentant professing believer who is carrying on in sin. And so there's a one-to-one encounter. Then there's a maybe bringing of other people to witness and hear the accusation. And finally, if need be, there's a telling it to the church. It explains in verse 18. But at the start of it, Jesus sets out this goal as to why we do this. He says it is to gain your brother. If he listens to you, you have won him, is the NIV translation. That word for gained is profit or won or gained. It's, it's, it's I, I, I brought you back into relationship with myself. And, and what's helpful is if you think of the context of, of his teaching on this, it's not just sort of separate little units there in Matthew 18. He's following up on, on a very familiar passage of, of, of teaching about the shepherd who has the hundred sheep in the sheepfold and the one goes astray. And what does the shepherd do? He leaves the 99 in the sheepfold and he goes and he searches diligently. And so Matthew 18 verse 12 says that he goes out in search of that one that went astray. And when he finds it, there is great joy. He is rejoicing. He has gained that one back. He has won him back. That's, that's the context in which Jesus then gives this teaching that we're reading in verse 15 about gaining a brother. It's really about reconciliation. So suppose that that one who strayed was, was foolish and had done things to, to be difficult with the other sheep and, and had strayed all on his own. And it was his own sin that carried him away. The worldly perspective might tend to say, he's just a fool. Let him go. Just, just let him go out there and, and experience all of that. But Jesus says we don't simply cut our losses and move on. In fact, he then describes this process in Matthew 18 of, of trying to win back, trying to reconcile, if you will, trying to, to change the relationship to bring that one who is straying back to repentance so that you might win him back as a brother. That's the aim, reconciliation. Being eager to win your brother back, is, is the, it, it's the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, reconciliation, right? It is the fact that, that our relationship with God needed to be transformed so that we who were enemies and hostile to God needed to be made his own and we needed to be reconciled and it was done through the suffering of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.10 says that while we were enemies of God, even then he is reconciling us to himself through the suffering of Jesus Christ. It is, it is the, the shepherd who loves us and brings us to be his own. And, and Christ's suffering is in order to reconcile us. And we now live as a, as a reconciled people. Throughout the New Testament, the word that is translated reconciled is an intensified form of the word for change. So you have to change something, and then you put a prefix on it that says to, to really change it, to dramatically change it, is an intensified version of change. And so when we are reconciled to God, it is saying our relationship has now gone from being hostile to, to, toward him to now being in harmony with God, from being his enemies to now being his sons and daughters, to having our sins forgiven and being made right before him and taken from being at odds to now being together. We who have been saved from that, 
the, the penalty that is rightly due for our sin have been remarkably reconciled by a shepherd who joyously, graciously called us to be his own and who has brought us in. And we should be eager then to carry that ministry of reconciliation, both to unbelievers in the sense of bringing them the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also to the believing community living as a reconciled people who, who strive to win one another back when we go through situations that, that threaten to separate us, of so striving to replace hostility with harmony. Jesus in Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It's fascinating, again, the priority that Jesus puts on this, that as you are coming for worship, if you remember at that point that there is somebody who suspects you of something, you are to, to leave that, that act of worship and go to that person. Go and be reconciled. So, so whether you suspect someone has offended you, Matthew 18 says, go. Try to win him back. If you, if you think that somebody is suspicious of you and they're suspecting you of wrongdoing, Matthew 5 says, go. Go to that person. Strive to be reconciled and to win them back. All right, so you're at that point now. Your accusation, your suspicion, your judgment has brought you now into a face-to-face -face moment with this person. And, and, and we're trying at this point to, to not let it elevate into conflict. So what's next? Number seven, slowly and gently ask questions of the person who you're accusing, suspecting, or judging. And I add it slowly and gently because we've all been in those situations when we've suspected someone and we've asked questions, but it's been like a machine gun of questions. Why did you do this? I know why you did this. Well, why didn't you listen to me? You know, the whole sort of, there's, there's no love or gentleness about that. It's just, it's, it's a condemnation, but it's put in the form of a question. Well, this is, this is different. When the New Testament uses the, the, the language of accuse, the, the New Testament Greek, when it uses accuse, it's almost always in a negative light in the sense that it is a legal term of condemnation. It, it is bringing a charge of condemnation against the person. So it's almost always adversarial situations. It's the Jewish leaders accusing Jesus. They are condemning Jesus. It's the, the governing authorities who are putting Paul on trial. Um, it's, it's Romans 1 where it speaks of our conscience accusing us. It, 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 it is, it, conscience serves in the life of the unbeliever to point out the fact that they are a sinner, they are guilty, and so it does provide a, a condemning work that is to bring you to the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And then Revelation 12 speaks of Satan as the accuser of the brethren. He is trying to bring condemnation on, on believers. That, that kind of condemning accusation the, the going after of one person to another is not pictured in Scripture when it comes to these relationships between believers. It, it's not that sort of approach that we take. And, and in fact, we could go back to a passage we talked about last week, 1 Corinthians 6, when, when the believers are taking their conflicts outside of the church and into secular courts and in front of unbelieving judges, and, and they are condemned for that because they are, are taking this hostility out into the public square rather than talking through these things and resolving these things as we are called to do as believers. Our, our approach is not to point the finger and condemn. We, we, we're, not, we're not called to be prosecutors who are trying to finish the case, who are trying to prove your guilt. 
Uh, that, that's what we're used to, what we see on television, is that, that sort of spirit. We see it. Reality TV, I, I think more than anything, sort of fosters this environment of when somebody offends me, I just go after them, and I blame them, and I name call them, and I attack them. That's not what we are called to do. Our posture should be that there are, there are probably things we don't fully understand. I, I heard this. I saw this. Maybe I got it secondhanded. Maybe I saw it in person. But the reality is I know enough about myself from Scripture, and I know the way Scripture describes me and my ability to be deceived, and I know my propensities, that I know I need to slow down in this moment, and I probably need more wisdom in this. Instead of jumping from accusation to judgment, ask questions. That's why James says what he does, verses that, that we should probably all have in our back pocket at one time or another. James 1, 19 and 20, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The, the preventative that God's word gives us in situations when we are suspecting and accusing, the preventative that keeps us from just immediately escalating that is this, slow down and listen. And, and, and how do we listen? We, we ask questions. We embrace hearing what the other person has to say. The, the one thing God tells me to be quick about in conflict. I'm in a situation where it's, it's about to get intense, and the one thing God tells me to be quick about is to be quiet and listen to the other person, to endeavor to hear them, and in fact, to slow down on my speech at that moment. That's hard, right? Because I am... I am eager to make my case. I am accusing you because I, I, I've got some evidence and, and I want to come after you. And even when you are speaking, I'm probably not listening because I'm thinking ahead to the next point that I want to make. And I want to make sure you hear that too. And so it's hard to slow down and listen. And it, it's hard not to jump from suspicion to judgment. And yet scripture says, slow down. And one of the best ways that we demonstrate humble listening is by asking questions that show that we actually want to understand what the person is, is saying. That, the person may, may have offended and they may be guilty, but I, I want to still at least hold my accusation loosely enough that I want to give them a chance to, to, to talk about it a little bit and, and to help me understand better. Proverbs 15, 14, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. That word for seek is all over the Old Testament. Search diligently, pursue this. I, I want to hear from you. I, I want to understand better because I can be deceived here. I, even if I heard you say that, even if I saw you do that, I still can go ahead and interpret it in a way that's different than what you intended. And so I need to pause enough at that point to ask some questions to, to understand. We, we usually don't enter into difficult situations with our hearts sort of having a built-in roadmap. In other words, our hearts don't function like Waze or Google Maps, and we walk into a difficult situation, and they just neatly say, here's the next step. You're going to go this way, and here's the potential obstacles. Here's where there might be something in the way and as you go, and all those nice little warnings we get as we're driving. Our hearts are deceiving us, and they're urging us to fight for our case and to fight for our rights at that point, and, and our intuition is flawed. So I may, I may think I know what you said or did, but it can't hurt me to slow down enough to say, hey, what's going on? What are you desiring in this moment? What, what, what did, why did you say this? Can you help me understand this better? Proverbs 18, 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. 
This goes back to something I said to you last week that I think scripture bears out. It does not help you to have a friend or a counselor who only ever hears your side and agrees with you immediately. If their response is, you're right, find someone else who will ask you questions and, and explore. Well, did, did, did you ask her what she meant when she said that? Was there something you said or did in that? I'm only hearing your side of the story, but was there something you did in, in all of this that you're not telling me? If we agree that our perception can be flawed and our understanding isn't always right, then it shouldn't really be a problem for us to slow down and say, hey, I'm, I'm just trying to understand what you said. Because it, it sounded like this. This is, this is, what I, this is how I took what, what you said. Am I on, on, on track with that? Or, or did you mean something entirely different? Is, is there a better way that we can talk this through? Did I do something to offend you? This, this is the place, I, I said to you earlier, number five was not to infer motives, but this is the place where you can ask about motives. And in fact, as good counselors, we should ask motive questions if we're dealing with somebody who has offended us and maybe even acknowledges that, that they were angry, that they lost it. This is, this is the place to to help them think about their motives. Well, what was going on in your heart at that moment? What, what, did, what did you want? What, what, did, what were you just craving? You, got, you went from zero to 100 in, in like seconds. What was going on in your heart at that moment? And we're helping our brother or sister in that moment to, to, to think through by, by getting to the heart of, of what's going on. So be eager to gain them. Slowly and gently ask questions. Number eight, speak the truth in love. Again, I, I know these are simple, basic, probably read these before. Ephesians 4 is the, the classic passage that we go to in terms of communication amongst believers because Ephesians 4 assumes that we still struggle with sinful communication. We still struggle to speak well and we struggle to listen well. The, the whole premise of Ephesians 4 and verse 17 is you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The assumption there in Ephesians 4 is if I, if I go by my natural bent, I'm going to fall right back into the things that I am so comfortable in doing that I've done before. And that's to lying to cover myself or being impatient or being bitter or being angry or arrogant or, or, or something will enter into that. And that's why he says you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You must be different because the gospel has changed you. Think about when, when we start suspecting, accusing one of the great risks that we face, one of the great dangers we fall into is exaggeration, right? You always do this, right? You never listen to me every time I tell you this. And you go and, and you do just the opposite. And we, we succumb to exaggeration. We know, as we're saying, never and always, that we can't back that up with factual proof that it's probably an exaggeration, and yet we do it. The other danger, one of them, is, is just getting very cold and unloving toward the person. We may not exaggerate, but by our tone, we are coming across by our body language and our volume with a clear message. I, I know what you did, and I want you to feel the hurt. I, I want you to, to feel my anger at this moment. That's why Paul repeats this and says, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth. Don't exaggerate. Don't look to make more of it. Don't look to make less of it. I said this during the, the first service. I, I said this time and time again in, in counseling because it, I've seen it in counseling and I've seen it in my own first person experience. That when there are two people, fill in the blanks here, husband and wife, and they are in conflict and it's something that went wrong two weeks ago and it was never resolved along the way, 
that by the time they come and ask for help two weeks later, in one's mind, that incident that happened two weeks ago is now somewhere up here. Reality's here, it's somewhere up here, and it's worse than it ever was. And in the other person's mind, that incident was like forgotten. You know who we can stereotypically put in here, right? The husband's going, wait, what? What was that? I don't even remember. Oh, yeah, that. And she's remembering it in detail and then some. That's why he says speak the truth, that we stay focused on what, what is true, what is real, what was said, what was going on in that moment, and do it in love. Do it with a tone that, that puts away falsehood but also puts on a concern for that person so that we love them. The, the interesting thing is he says in 4.15 speak the, that we are to be speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. And then in 4.25, when he again says speak the truth, he doesn't say in love, but he qualifies it in such a way that he says, putting away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He's saying speak the truth as one who's in relationship with that person. They're not some enemy. They're not your foe at that point. They are your neighbor. They are somebody that you are in relationship, especially if we're talking about a fellow believer. You are members of the same body. Christ died for you and reconciled you and brought you into that body. And, and so you have a unique relationship to speak the truth as to someone who is in community with you. And so you love them because they're a brother or sister in Christ. Sometimes in the moment, all we tend to see is this person who did me wrong, this person who hurt me, this person who deserve something and should pay in some way. God's word says this is a neighbor. This is someone close to you. This is someone who, by, the virtue, uh, by virtue of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, has brought you together into one body so that you are members of that same body. We need each other, and that, that just stresses our mutual dependence. And so, therefore, the content of what I say needs to be truthful, and the tone the manner in which I say it needs to be loving. It needs to honor Christ as I demonstrate that mutual dependence. We saw this last week in Scripture. There is a place for making judgments, for being discerning, for, for, for judging things. But as Christians, we must do that in a different manner. We must do that in a way that, that models Christ's likeness. And so we speak truth and we do it in a way that loves Christ and loves that person. Two left. We're at the point now where trying to hold this loosely, trying to examine my own heart, trying to ask questions, trying to get others to ask questions, trying to engage with this person. We've tried very hard to check our desires and motives. We've, we've walked through this and we've, we've brought our accusation. And, and unfortunately, it seems now as if reconciliation is elusive at this point. The person is simply not responding or they're responding bitterly or they're not wanting to listen. And so number nine is don't escalate the situation beyond biblical boundaries. Paul in Romans chapter 12, another one of these places where he's just sort of walking through some wise statements about dealing with one another. And so in verse 14, live in harmony with one another. Verse 17, do not repay evil for evil. If someone's done you wrong, the solution is not payback. And then Romans 12, 18, here's the one I want to focus on. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
context here in Romans 12 allows that this, this may be something that could be either with the world, with an unbeliever, or with a brother or sister in Christ. It's not just talking about relationships within the church, because in fact, in Romans 12, 14, he's talked about the reality of persecution. Bless those who, who persecute you, he says there. And then in verse 17, when he speaks of doing what's honorable toward others, we do it what's honorable in the sight of all, he adds, and then again you see it in verse 18, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so he's broadening this so that it's not simply our relationships with each other as believers, but even in our interaction with others, to whatever degree we are able, Scripture says we are to live peaceably. So this is our action even with the, 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 the unsaved colleagues at work that, that we have difficulties with, or the neighbors that we don't particularly get along with, or, or the guy who, who just cut me off on the highway and, you know, gives me some gesture in the process. Um, how do I respond? And, and he's calling me to, as far as it depends on me, live at peace with all. Even if I am being unfairly treated for my faith in Jesus Christ, I still need to live within biblical boundaries. The, the, the emphasis here is not, not trying to go beyond to, to fix it, to uh, avenge it, to, to make it right somehow myself by my own doing. It is to keep it within whatever the boundaries of Scripture are, that knowing there's only so much I can do, and as best as I'm able, I ultimately need to know that God is here, and, and God has this, and, and I can be at peace in this situation. As far as, as that person's going to get from me, I'm not going to seek to escalate this. So you may have walked through everything we've talked about so far, this week and, and, and last. Tried and stay humble and gracious, trying to be self-suspecting, confessing your own sin, acknowledging what you've done, and the person that you are dealing with is as belligerent as ever. They are just digging in, and they are pushing back, and they are impatient and difficult. That person's a believer in Jesus Christ. Matthew 18 continues the process, and it does say that then, then you might need to bring some other people along who listen and, and hear what you say and hear how they respond and, and help them in some way. Help them come to a place of, of seeing this more clearly. And, and if that doesn't work, then you may even need to go to the, the elders in the local church and say, I need help. This is, not, this is not getting resolved in some way. Tell it to the church, he says in Matthew 18, 18. But when it comes to dealing with the world, Jesus gave us the direction and the example and model on that. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And what does he model? Peter gives us the eyewitness account in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 23, when he says of Jesus when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. We'll hit the rest of the verse in a moment. But he's saying, look at the way Jesus responds. He doesn't strike back. He doesn't threaten back, even though it's fully within his power to do so. The Son of God, at that moment, as he is being unjustly charged, responds with peace. He, he didn't escalate. And he's our model. That's why, that's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, we, he, leaving us an example to follow in his steps. We're to see what Christ did and we're to emulate that. And so there are times when we have pleaded with God to show us the log in our own eye, and, and, and he's done so, and our suspicion still appears to be correct. Our accusation still seems to be on the mark. The judgment we're making about the situation still seems right, and yet the person we're engaging with says, get lost. I don't want to talk to you. I'm, I'm, I'm done with you. You need to, at that point, as far as it depends on me, live 
at peace with that person as best you can. Um, you don't need to spread the story of his or her wrongdoing unnecessarily. That's not to separate that from going and seeking wise counsel, but you don't need to go and try to besmirch that person. You don't need to contemplate how you're going to get even with them somewhere down the road. Um, God enables you to deal with such matters within the boundaries of Scripture, responding in a Christ-like way and still living at peace with them. Grieve for that person. Tell it to the church if need be, if you've walked through the process. But in the end, you must choose the path of peace, which may mean stepping back, keeping quiet, not pushing it further, trusting that God will use others in that person's life, and that more than that, he will use his word and his spirit to accomplish his work. We live probably at a time that, unlike any other in history, where the ability to attack someone without face-to-face -face contact with them is more real, more there than it ever was. I mean, you can, you can zing them in, in a text that just nails them. You can send them that rotten email that you knew you probably shouldn't have pushed send on, but it felt good at the time. I mean, you and I can go on social media and we can attack somebody we've never even met before because of something they've said or done. We can just nail that person. At no point in history have people been able to accuse and judge without having to have any kind of interaction face to face. And that just begs all the more that we go back to the word of God and we rely on the spirit of God so that we would pursue the path of peace that we would not be known for being those prosecuting attorneys or those attacking critics. And we have been called to be peacemakers. And our boundaries are given to us by the word of God. And, and, and even when we want to lash out and get loud and make it clear that we're right and you're wrong, Scripture says, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The reason for that is number 10, because he, he goes on to explain. The reason for not escalating and for living peaceably is, is what Paul then says in Romans 12 and 1 Peter 2. And number 10 is this. We hold suspicions, accusations, and judgments loosely by resting in the ultimate judgment of God. In the end, even if you've done it all well, which is rare for most of us to have walked through it all well, but if you have and you've done it humbly and acknowledged your own and your accusation or your judgment is spot on in the end, what matters most is the perfect judgment of God. He is the one who is the ultimate judge. And so that's why Romans 12:18 says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. 12:19 says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There's a place there where Paul's saying, you're going to have to rest this with the judge. You can't fix it. You're not going to get what you think you desire at this point and what you think will make you happy. Instead, you need to live at peace and you need to rest in the righteous judge. 1 Peter 2.23, I read part of the verse before. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But, the rest of it says, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What does Jesus do as he is being falsely accused and he's being condemned of something he's never done? He rests in the ultimate judgment of the Father. He entrusts himself to him who judges justly. We... We tend to grip these things, this accusation, suspicion, conflict stuff, because it's, it's personal. This is about getting my way. And the grip gets tighter when we start with that, I, I am determined 
to make my case. I will prove you wrong. I, I, I know what you did. I, I will make you eat your words. I, I'm, I'm going to show him that he can't do that to me next time. I, I'm, I'm going to prove that he can't get away with it. I, I've told her so many times not to do that, and yet she does it, did it again. Notice the pronoun that starts all of those? I. I now take the place of master in this situation because this is what I want to happen. Listen, by all means, if you are in a situation where somebody is being harsh with you and, 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 and even to a, a place abusing, assaulting, there is a place for stepping back and pulling out and, and, and not subjecting yourself to, to abuse and, and, and things along that line. I just want to be clear on that when, when I say live at peace and rest in the judgment of God, that it's not just saying just sort of lay down um, and be that doormat at that point. But when it comes to your heart and how you're responding, at some point you're going to have to rest in the ultimate judgment of a righteous God because we won't always get our way on these things. I, and we grip them too tight when we try to, and we get convinced that, that we must be heard and we must be responded to rightly, and our judgment must be received, and we won't rest until we do. No one endures worse false accusations than Jesus. Here is the perfect Son of God who is healed, who has blessed, who has loved, who has discipled, and he is now being accused of blasphemy, of, of mocking God. And the Son of God had the power on the spot to right the injustices at that moment and to punish the wrongdoers. He could have brought down anything he wanted on those people in that moment. And yet he obeys and submits to the will of the Father. He entrusts himself to him who judges justly. And there Jesus rests ultimately, as Philippians 2 says, humbling himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus Christ on the cross endured the wrath that we deserved. For our sin. He's being punished for all that we have done. And, and, and so the wrath that Jesus Christ received is just in the sense that it is theologically the thing that has to happen. God must punish sin and Jesus is now bearing our sin. And so he is receiving the wrath of God. But humanly speaking, what is done to Jesus is pure evil. And yet he did not strike back because he trusted Father, He trusted in the purpose and plan that had been established for all of eternity, and he trusted that ultimately judgment would come in the perfect way at just the right time. In the end, our, our hope and our aim, if we make an accusation, should be to be loving and accurate, to reach judgments that are true, that are governed by God's word and God's spirit, and to, in all times, strive to win that brother or sister. Desire to be reconciled. Unfortunately, on this side of eternity, that won't always happen. And there are times when we will get it wrong, and there are times when they will get it wrong, and most of the time we both get it wrong, and we hope that hopefully by God's grace our eyes are open enough to, to repent and to admit where we've failed in this. But there are moments when things will go unreconciled. And in those moments, our desire should still be the glory of God and, and, and to live at peace and know that he is a just judge. If I have to, I'm going to just rest this in his hands and know that that's, that's where it's got to be at this point. Jesus Christ accurately knew our hearts. He knew the hearts of the disciples when they were confused and they were 
doing dumb things and asking crazy questions. He knew the heart of the Samaritan woman at the well and, and the sin that she had been involved in. And, and he knew the hearts of all the multitudes of, of, of sinners around him. And yet, what does he do? He goes toward them. He continues to go toward them and to pursue them and to bring them to reconciliation when he could have rightly judged and, and dismissed them. He moves toward them to bring them the hope and peace of the gospel. May God help us with our accusations and suspicions and judgments to hold them loosely and to still long to move toward those people, to try to bring about reconciliation and to win brothers and sisters back. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us in abundant measure. Lord, we, we understand without a doubt from Scripture that there's no mystery here about what we have done and who we are. Your, your judgment is true. Uh, Lord, I, I hear your words in, in, in the Psalms, just of your judgments being pure and altogether right. They, when, they, when your word, when your law condemns us and shows us our guilt, we have no objection. We have nothing we can use to, to try to explain that away. We are we are guilty. And yet having judged us guilty and set out the punishment as being an eternal suffering, eternal death, apart from your presence, by your grace, you then took all of our guilt and, and our hostility and our sin and you, you put it on your son you poured out your wrath on him, that he might be the lamb who substituted in our place, took our sin and took our punishment. So that we, those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, might be able to draw near to you. Even with our own accusing, suspicious, judging selves, Lord, we find forgiveness in the gospel. And we are reconciled to you through the suffering of Jesus Christ. We relish that. We cherish that. We thank you for that. And we pray now that you would help us to be a reconciling people, that, that we would be the peacemakers that, that your son called us to be when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, that we would be those people who would desire to pursue that, that we would help brothers and sisters in their struggle with sin, that we would be honest, that we would speak the truth in love, but that we would ultimately do so for your greater glory. That what is done, what fruit is born, might point back to your goodness and grace. Help us this week. Maybe there are people right now who, who we've struggled with who are suspecting things about us or we're suspecting about them. Help us to to open the door to face-to-face, to -face, or at least to verbally speak with them over the phone, just to, to make communication and to, to borrow on some of these principles that you've shown us in Scripture again, to, to speak the truth in love, to be open, to ask questions. And Lord, may you get the glory for all of the fruit that is born as your Spirit works in your people to bring about peace, we desire to see that so that the gospel might be elevated, Christ might be exalted. It's in his name we pray. Amen.